exercises and mis-exercises, the critique of repetition. Damned to distinguish between repetitions. The ethical distinction took effect from the moment in which repetition lost its innocence. The appearance of ascetics and asceticisms in the twilight of the advanced civilizations revealed a difference that had not been open to explicit development in earlier stages of civilization. In choosing to withdraw, the early practicing ethicists broke with the conventional forms and attitudes of life. They abandoned the established repetition sequences and replaced them with different sequences, different attitudes, not arbitrarily different, but rather redemptively different ones. Where the original distinction between high and beneficial life forms on the one hand, and hopelessly ordinary ones on the other, makes the, on the other hand, makes its cut, it does so in the mode of a neuroethical programming that turns the entire old system against itself. Here there are initially no intermediate forms. Body and soul reach the other shore together, or not at all. Quote, the whole man must move at once. End quote. The radical separation of ascetics, saints, sages, practicing philosophers, and later also artists and virtuosos from the mode of existence of those who continue in the average, approximate and unqualified, shows that the human being is a creature damned to distinguish between repetitions. What later philosophers called freedom first manifests itself in the act with which dissidents rebel against the domination by inner and outer mechanisms. By distancing themselves from the entire realm of deep-seated passions, acquired habits and adopted or sedimented opinions, they make space for a comprehensive transformation. No part of the human can stay as it was. The feelings are reformed, the habitus remodelled, the world of thoughts is restructured from the bottom up, and the spoken word overhauled. The whole of life rises up as a new construction on the foundation of favourable repetition. A first enlightenment came about when the spiritual teachers showed that humans are not so much possessed by demons as controlled by automatisms. They are not assailed by evil spirits, but by routines and inertias that force them to the ground and deform them. What impair their reason are not chance errors and occasional errors of perception. It is the eternal recurrence of the cliches that render true thought and free perception impossible. Next to Gautama Buddha, Plato was the first epidemiologist of the spirit. He recognised everyday opinion, the doxa, the pestilence that does not kill, but does occasionally poison entire communities. Empty phrases that have sunk down into the body produce quote-unquote characters. They mould humans into living caricatures of averageness and turn them into incarnated platitudes. Because existence in the ethical distinction begins with the annihilation of empty phrases, it inevitably leads to the negation of characters. Part of the charm of free humans is that one can see in them the caricature they might have become. 
whoever sought to eradicate it would be the human without qualities, free for an absence of judgment, character, and taste. Such a person would, like Monsieur Tester, state, La bêtise n'est pas mon fort. Stupidity is not my strong suit. They would be the human who had killed the marionette inside them. The the transformation occurs through mental de-automatization and mental decontamination. Hence the use of silence in many spiritual schools to empty the cliché depot, a procedure that usually takes longer than a major psychoanalysis. Pythagoras supposedly demanded a five-year silence of his pupils at the beginning of their studies. Nietzsche was still acting in this tradition. Quote, Every characteristic absence of spirituality, every piece of common vulgarity, is due to an inability to resist a stimulus. You have to react. You follow every impulse. End quote. The spiritual exercise is the one that disables the compulsion. This de-automatization, this liberation from infection by the blindly reproducing unexamined, must be accompanied by the methodical erection of a new spiritual structure. Nothing could be more alien to the pioneers of the ethical distinction than modern spontaneism, which cultivates shock, confusion and the interruption of the habitual as aesthetic values per se, without asking what should replace the interrupted. The original ethical life is reformatory. It always seeks to exchange harmful for valuable repetition. It wants to replace corrupt life forms with upright ones. It strives to avoid the impure and immerse itself in the pure. That these binary oppositions entail costly simplifications is, for now, beside the point. All that matters is that in this framework, individualized freedom emerges in its oldest and most intense form. It results from an awkward discovery. There is a choice that changes all the factors influencing human behavior. The first ethicists faced the decision between a life in the usually unnoticed iron chains of involuntarily acquired habits and an existence on the ethereal chain of freely accepted discipline. The most erroneous possible conclusion one could draw from this is that the appearance of genuine practicing awareness concerned purely the active. Let the sadhus torture themselves in their lonely forests with complicated breathing exercises. Let the stylites feel closer to heaven on their absurd pillars. Let the philosophers sell their second coats and sleep on the ground. The average mortals will cling nonetheless to the opinion that these extravagant distortions of the ordinary are meaningless for them. The business of a sacred, perverse, private meeting between the incomprehensible God and his artist followers. Whoever is unable to participate can continue in their old habitus, which, though not perfect, seems good enough for everyday life. The creature that cannot practice. In reality, the secession, the secession of the practicing planes. Let me try that again. In reality, the secession of the practicing places the entire ecosystem of human behavior on an altered foundation. 
Like all acts of rendering things explicit, the appearance of the early practice systems brought about a radical modification of the respective area, that is, of the whole field of psychophysically conditioned actions. Explicit exercises, whether the asanas of the Indian yogis, the Stoics' experiments with letting go of the non-own, or the exercitationes spiritualis of Christian climbers on the heavenly ladder, cast a shadow on everything that lies opposite them, on the implicit side. This is no less than the world of old Adam, the gigantic universe of unilluminated conventionalities. The shadow zone encompasses the area dominated by repetitions of an undeclared practice character. We can leave open the question of whether the psychoanalytical insult to humans claimed by Freud, triggered by the purportedly unwelcome discovery that the ego is not the master of his own house, ever really existed. There is certainly no doubt about the reality of the behavioristic insult to humans, which could equally be called the ascetological one. It follows from the observation that 99.9% of our existence comprises repetitions, mostly of a strictly mechanical nature. The only way to deal with this insult is to imagine that one is still more original than plenty of others. If one subjects oneself to more probing self-examination, one finds oneself in the psychosomatic engine room of one's own existence, where there is nothing to be gained from the usual flattery of spontaneity and freedom theorists would do better to stay upstairs. In this investigation, one advances into a non-psychoanalytical unconscious, encompassing everything belonging to normally athematic rhythms, rules, and rituals. Regardless of whether it stems from collective patterns or idiosyncratic specializations, in this area, everything is higher mechanics, including intimate illusions of non-mechanics and unconditioned being for oneself. The sum of these mechanics produces the surprise space of personality, in which surprising events are actually very rare. Humans live in habits, not territories. Radical changes of location first of all attack the human rooting in habits, and only then the places in which those habits are rooted. Since the few have been explicitly practicing, it has become evident that all people practice implicitly, and beyond this that humans are beings that cannot practice, if practicing means repeating a pattern of action in such a way that its execution improves the being's disposition towards the next repetition. Just as Mr. K is always preparing his next mistake, humans as a whole are constantly taking the necessary steps to ensure that they will remain as they have been up until this minute. Whatever is not repeated sufficiently often atrophies. This is, a, this is familiar from everyday observations. For example, when the musculature of static limbs begins to degenerate after a few days, as if concluding from its temporary disuse that it has become superfluous. In truth, one should probably also keep the non-use of organs, programs and competencies for exercises in steady decline. Just as there are implicit fitness programs, there are also implicit unfitness programs. That is why Seneca warns his pupil, a single winter relaxed Hannibal's fibre. Other states of weakening may follow years of neglecting work. 
From this it follows that even a simple maintenance of bodily, or rather neurophysical form, can only be comprehended as an effect of undeclared training. This comprises routines whereby the standard procedures of an organ complex are, through inconspicuous procedures, employed often enough to stabilise the complex at its current fitness status. The self-activation of organisms and sequences of undeclared practice programmes, sequences that constantly have to be run through anew, culminate in a mute autopoiesis. The element of live creatures that seems like mere self-identity is de facto the result of a perpetual self-reproduction by overcoming invisible training programs. The nocturnal activities of the brain, part of which one experiences as dreams, are probably first and foremost backup processes for the self-program in its state prior to the last waking phase. The self is a storm of repetition sequences beneath the roof of the skull. Personal identity, then, offers no indication of a mental essence or inert form. It rather shows the act of overcoming of a probability of decline. Whoever remains identical to themselves thus confirms themselves as a functioning expert system, specialising in constant self-renewal. For surprise-friendly creatures of the Homo sapiens type, even triviality is not futile. It can only be attained through a constant cultivation of identity, for whose important aid is inward and outward self-retrivialization. Retrivialization is the operation that enables organisms capable of learning to treat something new as if they had never encountered it, whether by equating it mechanically with something familiar, or by openly denying its didactic value. Thus the new, initially and mostly, has no chance of integration into the apparatus of operating gestures and ideas because it is assigned either to the familiar or to the insignificant. If in turn the neolatric culture of modernity posits meaning in the new per se, this causes a brightening of the global learning climate. The price of this is a historically unprecedented will to be dazzled that gives unlimited credit to illusions of the new. Even manifest stupidity, incidentally, cannot be taken as a simple datum. It is acquired through long training in learning avoidance operations. Only after a persistent series of self-knockouts by the intelligence can a habitus of reliable mindlessness become stable. And even this can be undone at any moment through a relapse into non-stupidity. Conversely, Every learning theoretical romanticism should be viewed sceptically, even if it appears under classical names. Aristotle was speaking as a romantic when he stated in the first line of his metaphysics, all humans strive for knowledge by nature. In fact, every striving for knowledge, understood by Aristotle above all as primary visual enjoyment, encounters its limits as soon as something new appears that one does not want to see. Such things are usually sites that are irreconcilable with the imperative of preserving identity. Then, the much-lauded thirst for knowledge among humans turns in a flash into the art of not having seen or heard anything. The ethical distinction not only uncovers the hidden practice character of ordinary life, it also reveals the gulf between the previous existence and the accustomed and the metanoetic life forms that must be newly chosen. This distinction demands cruelty towards oneself and others. 
it leads to overload in its most naked state. We hear its original voice when Jesus says, Anyone who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. And I did not come to bring peace but a sword. The blade of distinction is the apocalypse that takes place now or never. The re-exercising of all exercises. Just as a person's unexpected suicide calls their entire social environment into question, an individual conversion to philosophy or their entrance into an ethical group problematizes the modus vivendi of all those with whom they had previously lived under the same roof, bound by the same customs, impregnated with the same habits, entangled in the same stories. Every conversion implies the speech act, I herewith leave the shared reality, or at least the statement of intent, I wish to leave the continuum of the false and harmful. To do thus, the adept does not need to board the ship that would take them to the island of Utopia. The destinations are often only a few hours' travel from the hopeless villages, or a day's walk from the agitated city. Whoever seeks out these heterotopias knows that once they arrive there, they will have to undertake far longer inner than outer journeys. If an applicant is taken up into a community of the practicing, their further life consists in the systematic revaluation of values. The cynics called this procedure defacing the coin, parasharatian to nomosma, which also means changing one's customs. Thus, a counterfeiter's metaphor provides the key word in the history of higher morals. The ethical mints are training camps for the ethos in need of remoulding. For the cynics of the 4th century BC, this meant renouncing all forms of behaviour based on arbitrary human rules, and henceforth listening only to the physis. These unabashed dissidents were probably the only wise men to believe that one could do such a thing in the middle of the city, provided one could find a vacant barrel. The other adepts of ethical difference knew very well that it is best to turn one's back on one's usual abode. As ethos and topos belong together, a different ethos calls for a different residence. One can only return to the origin if one is so deeply rooted in the new place and the changed habitus that there is no risk of relapsing into the old one. Until one reaches that point, it is good to inhabit a protected space in which the things considered right by the many, ton polon doxa, bounce off the better knowledge of the few. Among the early Greek Christians, one openly named a remote training centre after the activities that went on there, Asketeria, or sometimes... He said Chasteria, the place of exercises in silence. The Indian word ashram, still in frequent use today, refers to the place of exertion. Sanyasan, on the other hand, the Indian name for the world abstinent, literally means one who has cast off all things, including the ties to a profane abode. It is said that the Indian wise man Totopuri, who lived around 1815 to 75, 
Urama Krishnan's teacher, who bore the epithet, the naked, Nagaka, never wore clothes, never slept under a roof, and never stayed in one place for more than three days in his entire life. For Nietzsche, only a generation younger than the evasive Indian, the other place was Sils Maria, at the foot of the mountains that are mirrored in the severe smoothness of Lake Silvaplana. Quote, Six thousand feet beyond man and time. End quote. The ethical distinction brings about the catastrophe of habits. It exposes humans as beings that grow accustomed to anything. Quote unquote, virtue is one possibility of habituation among others. Humans are equally able, however, to make the worst their own until it seems incontestably self evident. Any inhabitant of a somewhat freer country today who looks at conditions in overt dictatorships will find ample evidence of this, whether in the daily news or in the archives. One has to have seen a Nuremberg rally, a Moscow parade on the 1st of May, or a mass gymnastic performance in Pyongyang to have an idea of how far an attachment to the abhorrent can extend. From the perspective of the Greek Asceteria, the Indian ashram, or the Upper Egyptian Hermitage, however, the entire empirical world of humans was already nothing but a corrupt training camp early on, one in which comprehensive wrongness exercises were performed day and night under the guidance of semi-lucid kings with the ranks of gods, pseudo-knowledgeable elders and gloomily severe priests who only knew how to pass on conventional rules and idle rituals. They translated external necessities into holy customs which they then defended like holy necessities. The rest is culture, quote-unquote culture, insofar as this means the copier that guarantees the self-preservation of the convention complex, in newer jargon a memeplex, through the transference of prevailing patterns from one generation to the next, and the one after that. All moral philosophy is superficial, then, if it is not based on a distinction between habits. Even a critique of practical reason relies on unguaranteed conditions as long as the most important anthropological question has not been settled. Can human beings ever be taken out of fixed bad habits? And under what circumstances do they succeed in finding a new rooting in good ones? Kant's well-known argument from the text on peace that even, quote-unquote, a race of devils, if it has a modicum of sense, must find a passable modus vivendi by establishing a legal order uncannily similar to a civil constitution. This is flawed because he fails to understand anti-moral gravitation. Quote-unquote, being a devil, whether poor or evil is unclear, is only a metaphor for an actor's trapped state within an, within an ignorant habitus. And it is precisely the undoing of this that Kant makes too easy for himself in his appeal. The Kantian devils are merchants who know that they know how much they can go. The Kantian devils are merchants who know how much they can go too far. Well-behaved egotists who have attended their rational choice seminars. A true race of devils embodies a collective fatalists. Embodies a collective of fatalists where de-disciplining has reached the fundamentalist level. They do not merely live in the squalid cellars of St. Petersburg. They are at home in every dead-end banlieue, 
and every chronic battle zone. In such circumstances, individuals are convinced that nothing is more normal than the hell they have provided for one another, as long as anyone can remember. No devil without its circle, and no hell without the circle made of circles. Whoever grows accustomed to hell becomes immune to the call to change their life, even if it is in their own interests. The meaning of own interests is already trapped by running in the harmful circle. Under such conditions, it is almost irrelevant what instructions one gives the inmates of these personal circuli vitiosi to bring them to their senses. For failure is certain, whatever one does. One should neither hope for any results from the inner moral improvement of man, which can't too wisely abandon, nor from the external, quote, mechanism of nature working through the self-seeking propensities of man, end quote whose reciprocal neutralization the philosopher considered a way to achieve at least an enforced peace. Experience shows that peace between inhabitants of infernal circles comes not from a mutual tempering of self-seeking propensities, but from concrete asymmetries. These can result from one-sided exhaustion or a resounding victory by one party. That is why systemicists say that one of the tools of evil is the inability to win. The Source of Bad Habits On the Metaphysics of the Iron Age Before we settle the matter of whether humans can be uprooted from bad habits, and if so, by what method, we should recapitulate how they were able to take root in them in the first place. Instead of under malum, we now ask under mala habitudo. The classical moral theological answer exists as catalogues of vices, of which the seven-part list by Gregory the Great from the late 6th century enjoyed the greatest success. These state that bad habitus is the consequence of an evil decision, born of leisure and encouraged by arrogance. Some mythical answers go deeper, looking beyond the individual and relating bad habits to the necessity of inhabiting a barren world. If this were a culture-historical investigation, a passage on the natural history of need and its translation to the human sphere would have to follow here. In our context, it is sufficient to note that the earliest articulations of difficulty of being a human date from the era of Mesopotamian and Mediterranean empires. One finds anonymous authors speaking for the first time of an unease in the world that points beyond any unease in culture. Instructive statements about the genesis of negative habitualizations are provided by two great myths about the human condition that mark the beginnings of the ancient Western civilizatory complex. On the Judeo-Christian side, the biblical tale of the expulsion of the first human couple from paradise and on the Greco-Roman side, the doctrine of the Golden Age, which, owing to a dark causality of deterioration, has led to the present Iron Age via the intermediate ages of silver and bronze. Both narratives share the intention of explaining the normality of the bad. What sets them clearly apart from each other is the means they use to achieve this. The former explains the stay of post-paradise humanity in a chronically unsatisfying reality, using a moral catastrophe model, 
known as the fall of man. The latter attributes the difficulties of the human race to a law of destiny that defines the present as a third stage of decay in a providential worsening process. While the moralistic model explains the unfavourable status quo as a consequence of overstepping a single boundary, the myth of the ages of man needs three descending steps to interpret mankind's unbalanced state as a result of the adverse conditions of the Iron Age. I will not linger on the conclusion that the fatalistic interpretation far exceeds the moralistic one in terms of contemplative breath and historico-philosophical substance. Whereas the moralistic version has a stronger personal effect on addressees due to its invasive tendency. From a systemic perspective, the biblical account contains a significant element of quote-unquote moral insanity, as it twists the knife even deeper into the chronically burdened humans in order to read their situation as an inherited debt and well-deserved punishment. At the same time, there is a certain psychogogical prudence in the culpabilistic arrangement for humans, as empirical findings show, become substantially more resistant to suffering when they are presented with a clear sense of what for, or failing that, at least a why and a from where. The Christian reception of the tale describing the expulsion from paradise produced a civilization whose members cannot experience hardship without thinking they deserve it. We regularly display our willingness to take the blame for our suffering, as if making a contribution to a semantic health insurance. In fact, what was viewed as a commitment to the Christian religion, quote-unquote religion, was often no more than our mandatory contribution to this guilt system. In the present context, however, what concerns us is the shared dedication of the Jewish and Greco-Roman narratives to interpret interpreting the situation of humans in the world as a permanent stay in a malign milieu. The point of departure for both is the evidence that human existence in its present manifestation is fundamentally a being in need, including the necessity of adapting to need. Together they support the complementary evidence that the current state of affairs can only be understood as a fall from an originally completely different state. The chronic misery only appears as a consequence of epochal deteriorations. Whether gradual and repetition-based or singular and catastrophic, in both cases habitualized misery is experienced differentially. In the real domain it contrasts with the modus vivendi of happy individuals who are still better off than most others and in the imaginary domain with the notions of times in which things were better for everyone. This difference provides the matrix for the search for the other condition. Quote, where life itself is a withdrawal treatment, it provides fertile ground for addiction. End quote. The connection between addiction and search is explained by etymologists and psychologists. Realism, scarcity, alienation. According to the oldest behavioural theories, adaptation to a chronically inappropriate climate creates a habitus that could, in a non-philosophical sense, be termed realism. 
It is best described as a reinforced perseverance under chronic pressure. In the biblical account, the emphasis is placed on holding out an abode state by the sweat of your brow under the constraints of agriculture, while the Mediterranean tales of the ages of man focus more on the new compulsion to lead an existence in permanent conflict with hostile and corrupt neighbours. The most important results of banishment, according to the book of Genesis, are the curse of work and the hardship of birth, and in Hesiod's version, the chronically unreliable nature of social relationships and the perversion of neighbour ethical norms. Both models contain rudimentary social philosophies and elementary hermeneutics of need that can be mapped onto modern theories of alienation. According to the first According to the former, the fall from the paradisiac, non-working world to the sphere of forced work through the traumatic advent of scarcity, the necessity of living in a milieu of scarcity, results from humanity's primal guilt. No one who has sinned will ever get enough. Because of an unforgivable transgression, the primal habitus of enduring in the face of constant lack is burned into the notion of the world entertained by man the supposedly deficient being. It constitutes a primary disciplining elevated to a prevailing mood. From this follow primal resignation, which leads to realism as an inner regulator of hardness, and primal escapism, which postulates the establishment of imaginary wealth enclaves. This places the stranger in the role of the one who dramatises scarcity by threatening to consume that on which my survival and the self-assertion of my group depend. The first stranger is the master on whom I have become dependent and who keeps me alive, but takes away every surplus that would improve my lot if I could keep it. He is my exploiter and my rescuer at once. The second stranger is the enemy, who takes until there is nothing left. One is alienated then, if one has a master and an enemy, regardless of whether, as in psycho-political set-pieces, one joins forces with the master against the enemy in an emergency, or with the enemy against the master, as can be observed in the dissolution of loyalties and palace revolts, rebellions and revolutionary wars. What Sartre writes in his Investigations of Alienated Praxis on the Man of Scarcity l'homme de la rarité, is, in essence, merely an exegesis of the biblical expulsion myth, read through a Hegelian conceptual grid. Scarcity imposes the impossibility of coexistence on the collective. Sartre locates this infernal existential one dimension too deep to reconcile it with the Marxist concept of exploitation. Likewise, he places competition and mutual reification through the evil gaze in such depths that no reconciliation or befriending could ever overcome them, either inside or outside the sphere of scarcity. Thus, he not only fails to see the possible productivity of competition, he also overlooks the factual departure from the world of lack through the modern property economy. The project of recuperating Marxism by enriching it with existentialist motifs was thus doomed to miss the mark from the outset. The deepest source of Sartre's failure, however, is not his pandering to the initially flawed critique of political economy. 
It is rather his philosophical equation of the human being with the epicentre of nothingness. It is where he draws most resolutely on metaphysical jargon that he becomes most remote from the present state of human knowledge. The human being is not negativity, but rather the point of difference between repetitions. Hesiod emphasises the disintegration of social cohesion in his statements on the Iron Age. What strikes him most is that the habitus of disloyalty predominates in the current race of humans, even among relatives and apparent friends. The natural parameters of good and bad, honour and dishonour, etc., all seem to have been inverted in the Iron Age. From a cultural, historical perspective, this shows a pragmatic, general climate, in which populations with a rural character are obliged to learn unaccustomed urban strategic life forms. In this change, individuals must learn to switch from mentality to success. They are forced to exchange recognition from the relatives and neighbourhoods for recognition from public markets and power cliques. They have to abandon the intuitive sense of right and wrong they have developed and become accustomed to the primacy of institutionalised court procedure. Together, these adjustments amount to a change of habitus that follows that followers of older values, like the farmer poet Hesiod, could only view as training for a world gone wrong. I shall add in passing that the Quran, despite coming into existence 1,200 years later, shares several aspects of Hesiod's worldview, as described in Works and Days. Here, the farmer's distrust of the incomprehensible new world of traffic has grown into the desert dweller's apocalyptic hatred of large cities, which were impenetrable for the old mindset. Here, what some call prophetism is the fiery form of saying no to heightened complexity. The ascetic suspension of alienation, the five fronts. These considerations enable us to define the consequences of the ethical distinction more precisely. It aims for the systematic weaning of the subject from the reality effects of the Iron Age. Contrary to one's first impression, it questions the finality of the post-paradisiac condition to separate the practicing individual from the dominant reality block. The ascetic revolt consistently attacks its opponent's strongest point, the great weaning process, as the history of asceticism shows, is directed at the five main fronts of need. Material scarcity, the burden character of existence, sexual drive, alienation, and the involuntary nature of death. In these fields, the early, explicitly practicing life proves that it is possible to compensate for even the most widespread existential deformations, albeit at a price that leads most to accept the ills instead. It is not only the fear of something after death, as Hamlet says, quote, that makes calamity of so long life, end quote. Even more, it is the hesitation before breaking out of a well-rehearsed and accepted misery. Given the choice between acquired deformation through reality and the feared deformations through asceticism practiced, lege artis, the majority has always chosen the former. They prefer to wait for a comfortable revolution that 
so they were told, would come as a quote-unquote event. People have always recoiled from the inconvenient realisation that nothing happens unless one brings it about oneself. Against hunger. Historical evidence shows that the earliest asceticisms developed on the poverty front. The ancient Indian practice masters were probably the first to discover the principle of voluntary withdrawal. That, one could say, takes the subject of the other side of suffering. As early as the earliest Brahmins, an extremism of abstinence came about, driven by the fantastic belief that the metabolism is but one of the illusions with which Maya, the sensuous veil-maker, makes fools of humans. By expanding abstinence from food to a somatic spiritual technique, they transformed hunger into a voluntary act of fasting. They turned a humiliating passivity into an ascetic action. The disempowerment of hunger led directly to the emancipation from the compulsion to work. Whoever chooses abstinence exits the producing life and knows only exercises. The early cultures of beggar monks in Asia and Europe prove that for the fellow humans, the spectacle of the spirit's superiority to the minimized body was worth a sacrifice. Alms were the entrance fee for the theatre of spiritual triumphs. One could say that those who made donations to the monks were falling for priestly deception, but the psychological reality was very different. The ancient beggar economy belongs to the realm of the search for autonomy, even for the poorest of the poor. Someone who has almost nothing, yet shares the most frugal meal with someone else, anticipates in the ascetic victory over the law of scarcity. In the case of St. Francis of Assisi, the defeat of hunger appears clothed in the relationship of courtly love to lady poverty. Some Europeans, perhaps not the most morally insensitive, are impressed to this day by this transformation of a misery factor into a gallant allegory. Let us note that the old workers' movement in Europe still knew something about the first rebellion against the tyranny of need. Whether starving or eating, solidarity. Against overtaxing. The second expansion of the autonomy zone is due to the early athletes and to their forerunners and the military nobility. They found a way to disable the law of permanent overtaxing to which the great majority of people in class societies submit. While the normal response to chronic strain is a mixture of hardenings and little escapes that wear individuals down sooner or later, warriors and athletes develop the opposite response. They gain degrees of freedom from the burden character of existence by consistently outdoing the difficult through even more through the even more difficult. They show that a state of great effort is no sufficient reason not to make an even greater effort. The image of Hercules at the crossroads is the primal ethical scene of Europe. This ultimate hero of being able to do something, embodies the rule that one becomes human by choosing the difficult path. For this, it is necessary to favour the austerity of arete over the sweetness of depravity. Athletic irony pushes the boundaries back into the unbelievable, 
where there was nobody can do this. Now there is. Now I can. This expansion of the ability horizon also has a direct influence on the general sphere. Even the vulgar curiosity of the audience at athletic, at, at athletic and circus performances contains a solidarity with the actors that has anthropologically far-reaching implications. Like the hunger artist, the athletes have a message for the psychologically poorest and the physically weakest that is worth sharing in. The best way to escape from exhaustion is to double the load. Even someone who cannot imagine following this maxim literally should still draw inspiration from it. The theory that there is always room to go higher is one that concerns everyone. It is in this context that one must assess the future of modern sport. Like a Herculean collective, it is standing at a crossroads. Either the athlete continues to act as a witness to the human ability to take forward steps at the threshold of the impossible, with unforeseeable transference effects on all who involve themselves in the appealing spectacle, or they continue along the path of self-destruction that is already marked out, where moronic fans shower co-moronic stars with admiration from the very bottom, the former drunk and the latter doped. One might recall in this context that Euripides already considered the athletic scene in the 4th century BC, which had taken on a decadent life of its own, a plague. Quote, of all the countless evils in Greece, none is worse than the race of athletes. End quote. Athleton genuous. Against sexual need. On the third front, the activists turn their attention towards the tensions of sexual drive. As the libido was usually condemned to a long wait in many older cultures, especially with those with strictly patriarchal rules for marriage and family relations, decades often passed between the reaching of sexual maturity and possible legalised sexual activity. Eros was experienced by countless people as an unlivable dilemma. For so many, the kindest of all the gods thus transpired as the cruelest. If one yielded to one's urges, one could easily descend into disorder. If one resisted them, one faced constant torture from within. Thus the despair at sexuality became a constant factor of the unease in civilization. The widespread outlet institutions of prostitution, concubinage, letting off steam with slaves, masturbation, licenses for the young, etc., alleviated the problem, but did not solve it. The ascetic response to the challenge of the sexual drive was to transform the constant excess of specific pressure into an aspecific elan, to strive for higher goals. The procedure for this, to use a more recent term, was sublimation. Plato revealed its schema by describing the ladder on which sensual desire ascends to a spiritual motivation, from one beautiful body to another, and from the plurality of beautiful bodies to the singularity of the beautiful. This ultimately transpired as the side of the good itself that shines in sensuality. In its conventional manifestations, philosophical critique of sexuality merely accuses it of sabotaging the ascent. Whether it creates a fixation on frustrating fantasies when it, gets, when it is unfulfilled, or, when fulfilled, drains off mental energy, 
and gets caught in the small-scale cycle of tension and relaxation. Monastic critique of sexuality takes a far more direct approach from the outset by virtually demonising physical desire, but with the same aim, to create perpetual desire and keep it at the necessary temperature. With this infinitized desire, which still haunted the shamefaced metaphysics of the 20th century under the name Desir, has most cause to fear is the relapse into finitude that brings about the return of tepid prose. What this infinitized desire has most cause to fear is the relapse into finitude that brings about the return of tepid prose. This finitude is dominated by trivial inner states, depression, lack of élan, as well as the banal excess drive that does not lead to any goal-achieving or boosting programs. The uninspired psyche is unable to feel encompassed by an absolute. This spawns the gloom, which the early abbots called Arcadia, the midday demon that paralyzes the monk's soul with indifference to God and everything else. Arcadia appears on the list of seven deadly sins as sluggishness or sloth, and those who know it well almost fear it more than the queen of all vices, superbia. In modernity, infinite desire separated from humans and migrated into the economic system, which produces its own restlessness, while individuals increasingly discover that they can no longer follow the perverse imperative of always desiring and enjoying more. against domination and enmity. On the fourth front, the ascetic revolt puts an end to alienation by showing that humans can never be forced to have a master and an enemy. Here too, the method of liberation is a voluntary exaggeration of the evil. The ascetic enslaves themselves so radically that no empirical enslavement can touch them any longer. They choose their master in the highest heights, to free themselves from all second-class masters. Hence, Abraham breaks free of the visible gods by avowing his invisible god. Hence, the cynic, stoic, wise man submits to the law of the cosmos, which emancipates him from arbitrary human regulations. Hence, Christ sarcastically recommends giving unto Caesar what is Caesar's, for loyalty belongs to the God of the faithful, and the relationship with Caesar can therefore be no more than external. Thus Paul reminds the Romans that they were once slaves of sin, but now, as slaves of righteousness, are free. He even introduces himself in his opening salutation as a chosen slave of God, and for that very reason a free man. Modern references to the quote-unquote rule of law still recall the language of the old supremacism, which held that freedom could only exist under the law. Coercion by the highest downgrades all other compulsions to second-order factors. The dominion of the general is a medium of asceticism against the dominion of the concrete. Consequently, any universalism worth taking seriously presupposes an ascetic mode of access to the sphere of norms. Anyone who wishes to have universalism without the work of renunciation, as if it were an omnibus to equality, has understood nothing about the cost of high generalizations, 
at the same time, the ascetic emancipates themselves from the compulsion to have an enemy by choosing a universal enemy within, who can only appear in the outside world in second-rate projections. Whoever knows that the devil dwells inside them no longer needs an external malicious partner, hence the advice to turn the other cheek, and hence the Buddhist caution that the torture victim must not lose sympathy for their torturer. Moral asceticism takes away the enemy's power to make us strike back. Whoever moves beyond the level of reacting to enmity breaks the vicious circle of violence and counter-violence, albeit often at the price of remaining the suffering party. Moral hyperbole of this kind only draws small audiences in modernity, while the majority once again demands the license to strike back. The cause of this is primarily the change in the prevailing mood, the anti-thymotic psychopolitics of Christianity, which cautioned people for almost 2,000 years to conduct an inner inquisition against all stirrings of pride and self-affirmation, no longer has a footing in the achieving society of today. Let us not forget that every advanced legal system implies a scaled-down reproduction of ascetic abstinence from direct governance because it forces the wronged party to seek redress via the indirect path of a third party's judgment structured as court proceedings. Against the necessity of dying On the fifth front, the heroes of the ethical distinction attack death by transferring it from the sphere of abstract and fatal necessity into that of personal ability. They abolish the terrorism of nature to which mortals have been subjected since time immemorial. This does not have to go. This does not have to go as far as a physical physicalization of the immortality idea, as formed in the writings of Paul, and then once more of the Russian biocosmists. Currently, among the American techno gnostics, whose ambition is to absorb theology into physics. The conversion of necessity into ability presupposes a strong notion of continuum that spans the boundary between life and death. This can be seen in the two great scenes of the art of dying in old Europe, the death of Socrates and that of Jesus. Through demonstrations of composure in death, the end of life exemplarily changes into exemplarily changes into a symbolic order with a strong sense of continuum, as if crossing over were no more than a change in the state of matter. An able and nurtured death is a direct revolt against the animal-like perishment, of which Job said that it is nonetheless the fate of humans. It equally contradicts the naked killing that pervades Homer's world, which virtually overflows with second-class dead, who are left lying on the ground without honour to become food for the dogs and vultures while the incomparable slayer Achilles finds a place in Hellenic memory. The symbolically nurtured death in Christianity extends the memorial function to the saved, who remains unforgotten in a divine memory, and thus become immortal. One could describe the work of ascetics on the life-death continuum as an original accumulation of civilizatory energy that allows even the most external compulsion to be embedded in the interior of the symbolic order. A modern trace of this civilization is visible in the growing suicide movement in the West. 
It has dismantled the metaphysical exuberance of the ascetic art of dying, but works on the meanwhile secure evidence that humans are always entitled to experience their death in culturally tended forms. The sound arguments of contemporary movements advocating a dignified death aim to break up the alliance between a reactionary religion and a progressive technological machine. Medicine. A reactionary religion and a progressive technological medicine, which together barely allow more than a higher form of bucket kicking. Instead, the goal is to make the achievement of ascetic cultures, embedding death in a shared ability, accessible also to non-ascetics. The post-metaphysical legacy of the metaphysical revolt. Looking back at the ascetic revolts against the reality principle of the Iron Age permits a clearer definition of what I call the despiritualization of asceticisms. It shaped a significant stretch of the path to modernity, insofar as this epoch was characterized by the pragmatic leveling of metaphysical upswings. This process forces the excesses into the arts, as well as the adjustment that Gotthard Gunther terms the transition, quote, from the truth of thought to the pragmatics of action, end quote. In this sense, modernity constitutes a strong substitute program for the ethical secession. Its precondition is the demonstration that on the five fronts of the old need, one can still win by other means than those used in battle by the practice heroes of earlier times. This was precisely the motto proclaimed by the pan-sophists of the Renaissance and the pioneers of explorative thought. Humans can do anything of their own accord as soon as they want to. They opened the door to the post-miserablest age, which for the same reason is also a post-metaphysical one, as it reacts to existential compulsion with inner-worldly answers. Thinking and acting post-metaphysically means getting beyond the burdens of the old human condition with the aid of technology and without extreme ascetic programs. The only modern-day ascetics whose victories one wishes to be authentic are athletes, whereas the spiritual victors over the old human condition have been stripped of their authority through the culture of suspicion. Anyone who heard a voice from a burning thornbush after 40 days in the desert would be taken for a victim of a psychedelic episode. Anyone who claimed to transcend sexuality without ever having known it could be sure of being di a diagnosed neurotic. And modern observers of religion consider Buddha Amida, who reveals himself to Japanese monks after a hundred nights of sleep deprivation, a local psychosemantic effect. Because of its egalitarian design, modernity feels compelled to reformulate all truths that were previously accessible only to the few into truths for the many, and neglect whatever is lost in translation. This eliminates the foundation of practical ascetic extremism, but affirms its tendencies in all aspects. It is indeed necessary to set up a strong antithesis to the misery-based definition of reality in the agro-imperial age. If this can now also be articulated by non-metaphysical and non-heroic means, then all the better.
Every one of these translations ensued after the technical caesura of the modern age. The principle of their success is displayed by the fact that, during the last 300 years, an unprecedented civilizatory learning cycle has been active that fundamentally changed the laws of existence from the Iron Age and continues to change them. At times, the cycle has helped the dream of a return to a golden age or a restoration of paradise to political power. And even if the dream was never going to come true, the dream tendency as such always tells us something about the prevailing mood of the newer era. It was based on the intuition that the principle of reality had become a malleable plasma. Communist maximalism, which would accept nothing short of total renewal, has lost its psychological plausibility. It only lives on indirectly in the weary hatred which ex-radicals and their imitators in the third and fourth generation show towards our more moderate conditions. Nonetheless, the idea of returning to the second best still has great practical charms. In fact, Europeans and Americans, to use Hesiod's terms, catapulted themselves into a renewed silver age in the second half of the 20th century, within the quote-unquote crystal palace. They created conditions for the majority that differed, not gradually, but epochally, or rather aeonically, from everything that had been the case of a few centuries earlier. Let us recall once again the October Revolution of 1846, the epochal date in the history of pain. We should also emphasise the de-agrarianisation of economic life, and thus the end of the quote, idiocy of rural life, end quote. To the historian, it is beyond doubt that virtually all inhabitants of the Crystal Palace profit, at least in material and infrastructure terms, from unprecedented improvements in living conditions, a fact that is augmented and confirmed by the equally unprecedented blossoming of a culture of additional demands. The spiral of resignation from the Iron Age has been reversed and turned into an upward spiral of desire. In this situation, philosophy loses its mandate to rise beyond the static world of need that, as the theoretical wing of the ethical distinction, is administered for 2,000 years. It changes into a consultant to assist in explaining the advantage of no longer living in the Iron Age. It becomes a translation agency for transforming heroic knowledge into civil knowledge. It stands surety for the esoteric remainder with its own assets. In defence of the Second Silver Age It was Richard Rorty who promoted this translation work most coherently and appealingly in the last decades. Appealingly primarily because, despite his Dewey-inspired advocacy for the priority of democracy over philosophy, he made no secret of his sympathy for the exaggerations of heroic thought, which he also called romantic or inspiring thought. What places the American Rorty in the better traditions of European Baroque philosophy and the British-French-German Enlightenment is his unshakable fidelity to the idea of world improvement. A fidelity that finds its most old-fashioned and stimulating manifestation in his book on the improvement of America. 
Rorty was, next to Hans Jonas, the only thinker of the last half century with whom one could learn why a philosopher with an understanding of the times must have the courage to strive for simplicity. Only in a jargon-free language can one discuss with one's contemporaries why we, as members of modern civilization, may not have entered a golden age, but should not still view ourselves as citizens of an iron age either. When discussing the subject, philosophy and non-philosophy become one, and historico-philosophical theories and everyday intuitions merge into one another. The grandiloquent conservatives, who continue to cultivate the idiom of the Iron Age as if nothing had happened, must be challenged in a language of the middle. The same tone must be used to counter the far-left ideology still virulent at a local level, which, out of disappointment at the failed return of the Golden Age, do everything in their power to smear the Silver Age as a farce. Only in such a conversation could the reasonable element in the claims of the end of history after the collapse of the Soviet Union, which are presented somewhat exaggeratedly and rejected even more exaggeratedly, be reiterated. The end of history is a metaphor for the disablement of the dominant reality principle of the Iron Age following non-heroic measures against the five needs. These include the industrial-political switch from scarcity to oversupply, the division of labour between the top achievers and the moderately working in business and sport, the general deregulation of sexuality, the transition to a mass culture without masters and the politics of cooperation without enemies, and attempts towards a post-heroic thanatology. None of these measures are flawless, Not one of them can move entirely beyond the level of lesser evils, and in some aspects they are even perceived as greater evils of a new type. That is why countless inhabitants of the Second Silver Age, which does not understand itself, tend towards a deformation of this new state. What we call post-modernity is largely no more than the medial exploitation of unease at the second best, including all the risks that go with luxury pessimisms. The fateful question is whether one succeeds in stabilising the standards of the episodically materialised Silver Age, or whether a regression is imminent to an Iron Age of whose currentness both old and new realists are convinced. Not least considering the fact that over two-thirds of the human race have never left it. Such a regression would not be fate, but rather a consequence of willful reactions to the paradoxes of existence in the subpar. The decision about the further course of events depends on whether the learning context of modernity can get through all technical, political, economic, cultural, epistemological and sanitary crises and be expanded into a sufficiently stable continuum of improvement, knowledge and optimization ability. How little this continuum can be taken for granted is evident in the fact that the history of ideas in the 19th and 20th centuries produced an endless series of rebellions initiated by hostility to civilization and anti-technical resentment, regardless of whether these came about in the name of faith, the soul, life, art, national character, cultural identity, or diversity of species. These outbursts constituted terminations of training that 
did grave damage to modernity fitness, and the danger of new terminations has not passed, as the omnipresence of far-left, far-right, conservative and ecological fundamentalisms proves. The quote-unquote discourse of modernity, and not only the philosophical one, demands a constant clarification of its agenda and defence against the wrong curricula. Every generation must choose between escapisms and forms capable of becoming traditions. To ensure even the possibility of an effective learning continuum, an intensive filtering of contemporary idea production is indispensable, a task once entrusted to quote-unquote critique, which has been entirely gutted in the meantime. Critique is replaced by an affirmative theory of civilization, supported by a general immunology. Canon work in modernity. More than any form of civilization before it, modernity relies on sorting out what deserves to be passed on and foreshortening maladaptive developments. Even if the necessary warnings are perceived by the protagonists of a current generation that basks in expressive malformations as oppressive infringements. Being allowed to bask in short-lived maladaptations, incidentally, is a significant factor in the appeal of modern life forms. It defines their aroma of freedom and lack of consequences. It liberates the present from the burden of creating role models. It is no coincidence that modernity is the El Dorado of youth movements. Its greatest temptation is to abolish the future in the pretext of being the future. Whoever restricts themselves to single-age ways of life does not have to worry about conveying role models in multi-age processes. As self-evidently maladaptive forms also tend towards reproduction under liberal conditions, and go on to haunt subsequent generations, it is important for the civilizatory process to musealize such variants as soon as possible. At the latest one generation after the resignation of the protagonists. In truth, one of the most important functions of the modern cultural archive is to render superfluous the index of forbidden books and works of art, which has meanwhile become counterproductive. The archive reverently preserves all important and interesting errors, all projects with no future, and all unrepeatable departures forever. Its collections are recruited from strictly outside of the canon, in which the real generational process continues to work. Otherwise, preservation in museums runs the risk of being confused with setting an example for successes, which is incidentally the favourite mistake of contemporary artists. Following the end of the museoclastic movements, they view the public museum as a collection of normative works and fail to recognise its new function as the final destination of singularities. That is to say, as a depository for productions that can neither be followed up nor repeated. They likewise misunderstand the function of private collections, which is ultimately merely to withdraw pseudo-transcendent works from circulation. In addition, the paralysis afflicting the humanities today stems from the fact that its protagonists have, for the most part, settled into the archive as free-floating observers. Rorty slightly contemptuously calls them, quote, detached cosmopolitan spectators, end quote. 
and left all programmatic work on the crafting of a civilizatory code with a future to chance and fanaticism. Malign Repetitions 1. The Culture of Camps. Following on from these observations, I shall point out a few maladaptation phenomena that shaped the civilizatory process of the 20th century. From today's perspective, they should be read as symptoms of the triumph of malign repetition in recent sequences of traditions, and therefore constitute emergencies for an intervening science of culture. I shall begin, continuing from the reflections of the previous section, with the culture of political murder in the pseudo-metanoetic politics of the 20th century, then deal with the weakening of the imitative factor in contemporary pedagogy, and finally address the illusory rejection of imitation in modern aesthetics. As far as the externalization of metanoia and the revolutionary politics of the 20th century goes, there is little to add to the earlier deliberations on the biopolitics of Bolshevism. The attempt to force, by political technical measures for large collectives, what could previously barely be achieved even through extreme ascetic exercises by highly motivated individuals, inevitably led to a politics of absolute means. Because the elimination of sluggish fellow humans seemed a logical choice as the means of all means for projects with this level of ambition, the first half of the 20th century saw the birth of the most historically unheard of form of maladaptive culture, the culture of camps. It served repression on the pretext of re-education, extermination on the pretext of work, and finally eradication without any pretext. One initially hesitates to apply the term, quote-unquote, culture to such phenomena. If one considers the scale of the camp worlds, however, their ideological premises, the logistical efforts they demanded, their personnel requirements, their moral implications, their habitus-forming effects, and their mental side effects among those running the camps, the word, quote-unquote, culture, cannot be avoided. Even for these professionally learnable, routine-anchored monstrosities. Although the one tends initially to assume that the longer-term prospects of transmission for camp norms must have been poor, it is undisputed that during most, most of the 20th century, there was an entrepreneurial culture of internment, selection and elimination that survived for longer than one would ever have believed possible, either on moral or on culture-theoretical premises. Crime, organized by the revolutionary party state, reached the Weberian stage in the Soviet Union and China, in the sense of a transition from a state of emergency to bureaucratization. A maladaptive reversal with such long-term effects can also be observed in the life forms of the Parisian miracle courts in the 17th and 18th centuries. Those counter-worlds of thieves, beggars and gypsies immortalised in novels of the 19th century. Above all, Victor Hugo's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. In these, too, something resembling a stable, perverse counterculture had come into being with unduly high chances of continuance. 
It constituted a parallel culture of the metropolitan poor that had been born out of need. A long-term camp culture of the 20th century, on the other hand, was exclusively the work of pseudo-metanoetic states that invoked the French Revolution and took over the Jacobin sanctification of terror. The birth date of modern extremism as an entrepreneurial form, as an institution, can be precisely determined. 5th September 1918, when Lenin's decrees on Red Terror stated expressly that one must incarcerate the enemies of the Soviet Union in concentration camps and eliminate them step by step. This approach, intended as provisional in the first years, was maintained on a massive scale well into the 1950s, and in smaller forms until the 1980s, finally in collaboration with Soviet psychiatry, which was based on the axiom that dissatisfaction with the life forms of actual socialism was a symptom of severe mental illness. The facts speak a clear language. The world of Nazi camps lasted for just under 12 years, those of the Soviet Union almost 70 years, and those of Maoism at least 40 years, with a protracted aftermath in the prison system under the authoritarian capitalism of present-day China. This means that Soviet extremism could spread its copies as far as a third generation, and in the case of Maoism a second, whose effects are still felt today. The system of Lao Gai, literally reform through labour, affected over 50 million people and wiped out, wiped out over a third of these. We owe a debt of gratitude to anti-fascism of all stripes for the insistence with which it denounced the hyper-maladaptive atrocities of the Nazi state. The Holocaust, that German synthesis of amok and routine. What remains notable is the asymmetry of coming to terms with the past. Anti-fascists of Soviet and Maoist dispositions have always evaded the question of why they showed so much more discretion when it came to the excesses of their own history, which were quantitatively even greater. To this day, knowledge of its true proportions is anything but widespread. Despite Solzhenitsyn, despite Jung Chang, and despite the black book of communism. While the denial of Nazi crimes is rightly treated as a punishable crime in some countries, the atrocities of the Marxist archipelago are still considered peccadilloes of history in some circles. We learn from this that lies do not always have short legs. If maladaptation forms on such a scale are able to develop a second and third generation, their legs are rather longer than those of ordinary lies. It is worth pondering what enabled them to become so long. This concerns not only the autonomous creation of laws and dictatorial state formations, which tend to become retreats into abnormality, but also the foundations of modernism with its advent, the gulf between demoralizing success and legitimate exemplariness known from older culture stages opened up with unprecedented virulence. If a thinker of Sartre's calibre resolved to keep silent about the facts of the Soviet camp world well into the 1950s, despite knowing of its origins, 
its dimensions and its consequences, and even went so far as denouncing Western critics of the camps, including Albert Camus, as mendacious lackeys of the bourgeoisie. It is evident that the greatest maladaptive anomaly in the political history of humanity cast its shadow on the power of judgment of eminent intellectuals. The most culture-theoretically relevant information lies in the dates. Sartre's vow of silence accompanied the transition of Soviet camp culture to the third generation. He supported the perverse change of a quote-unquote measure into an institution. If one acknowledges this irrefutable meaning or secondary meaning in Sartre's reference to his quote-unquote companionship with socialism, it is undeniable that in his person, which seemed to embody the moral oracle of his generation, the archetype of the false teacher had entered the stage. Though cultivators of the critical memory prefer to discuss it with reference to the person of Heidegger. Heidegger may have been a false teacher against modernity in some respects. The late Sartre was in all respects the false teacher in favour of modernity. Only in the context of a strict musealisation can one refer to authors of this calibre to distinguish between greatness and exemplarity. Malign Repetitions 2. The Erosion of the School As far as the decline of practice culture and the awareness of disciplines in the pedagogy of the second half of the 20th century are concerned, this forms the most recent chapter in the long history of antagonistic cooperation between the modern state and the modern school. I have shown how the liaison and the contradiction between state semantics and school semantics in Europe from the 17th century on, if not earlier, inevitably led to chronic tensions between the internally differentiated subsystems. If the state's traditional request to the school to produce usable citizens is translated by the latter into an order to develop autonomous personalities, constant friction is preordained. As creative dysfunction on one hand, and as a source of chronic disappointment on the other, Generally speaking, one can say that bourgeois advanced civilization emerged from the surpluses of school humanism via the state education mission. One can virtually speak of a Felix culpa on the part of the older bourgeois education system. It gave its more talented pupils infinitely more cultural motifs than they would ever be able to use in their civil functions. In this context, it may be productive to note that some of the greatest phenomena of spiritual surplus in recent intellectual history, Johann Gottlieb Fichte as the reinventor of the theory of alienation, and Friedrich Nietzsche as the moderniser of the Christian superhuman idea, passed through the same school. The Thuringian Forte near Naumburg, which was known in its time as one of the strictest secondary schools in Germany. Fichte from 1774 to 1780, and Nietzsche from 1856 to 1864. It's hardly necessary to explain how the Tübingen Seminary over-fulfilled its training mission with the pupils Hudelin, Hegel and Schelling. The question of what the pupil Karl Marx, who graduated in 1835, owed to his formative years at the gymnasium in Trier, the former Jesuit Trinity College, has been answered with rather modest information by revolutionary historiography.
In the most recent phase of school history, the creative maladaptation of the classical school has been perverted into a malign maladaptation that can be called modern insofar as it resulted from an epoch-typical disturbance of role model functions and the accompanying decline in practice consciousness. In the wake of this, school approaches a point of twofold implosion in which it produces neither citizens nor personalities. It heads towards a state beyond conformization, con- conformization and production of surpluses that bypasses all aspects of direct usefulness and indirect creation of consequences. Year after year, it releases more and more cohorts of pupils whose adaptation to a school system that has got maladaptatively out of control is increasingly evident, without any blame whatsoever being attached to individual teachers or students. The two are joined in an ecumene of disorientation, scarcely paralleled in history. Unless one wishes to point to the long night of education between the collapse of the Roman school system in the 5th century and the rebirth of a Christian humanist school culture in the wake of the Alcuinic Carolingian reforms during the 8th century. To diagnose the malaise, one would have to show in detail how the current school takes part in the process that Niklas Luhmann calls the differentiation of subsystems. Differentiation means the establishment of strictly self-referentially organised structures within a subsystem or quote-unquote praxis field. In evolution theoretical terms, the institutionalization of selfishness. Luhmann's ingenious impulse was to show how growth in the performance capacity of subsystems in modern society, whether in politics, business, law, science, arts, the church, sport, pedagogy or the health system, depends on a constant increase in its self-referentiality, to the point of its transition into a state of complete self-referential closure. In moral theoretical terms, this implies the remoulding of selfishness at the subsystemic level into a regional virtue. For quote unquote social critique, this means that helpless protest against the cynicism of power is replaced by system enlightenment, that is to say, a clarification of enlightenment. The systemically conditioned revaluation of values presupposes the de-demonization of self-preference that one can observe in the texts of the European moralists between the 17th and 19th centuries. It's hardly surprising then that one encounters a neutralized perversion at the centre of every subsystem. It is not only the offensive deviation of the quote-unquote blasphemer from the moral norm that appears perverse, but far more the openness of the admission that the subordinated system is ultimately only concerned with itself, not its possible mandates in a larger framework. Thus there is a close connection between cynicism and perversion. Cynicism, after all, as enlightened false consciousness, speaks the truth about the false, provided that it helps immorality to become blatant. This breakthrough to blatancy, the aletheia of systems, first occurred in the field of politics when Machiavelli disclosed the autonomous laws of political action and recommended its emancipation, long considered scandalous, from general morality. 
This was followed by economic theory from the advent of mechanical production in the late 18th century. Early liberals like Mandeville and Adam Smith had already understood. First comes amortization, then morality. The the industrial system openly recognised that its task was to gain profits for its managers so that they could service their loans, make new investments and cover salary costs. In short, within the system, quote-unquote social factors can only be taken into account via calculations of side effects. The argument that business is of most use to the social environment when it concentrates on what it does best, namely generating profits, is correct across the board. And yet it does not manage to acquire more than a vague plausibility, for the direct success of one side is accompanied by growing evidence to the contrary. The selfishness of the economic system ignores too many other interests, whether one describes these as the interests of the whole or not. The remaining subsystems are naturally forced far more strongly to hide their selfishness and justify themselves with the aid of vague holistic rhetoric. This does not alter their factual development into quote-unquote selfish systems. Each of them produces so-called experts who explain to the rest why things have to go the known way. They have to make it clear to the sceptical audience why the all-too-visible self-interest of the subsystem is outweighed by its usefulness for all. But one can still not imagine a health system openly stating that it primarily serves its own self-reproduction. Nor has one heard any utterances from churches to the effect that their only goal is to preserve the churches, even though open speech is considered a virtue among the clergy. There is even less reason to expect the school systems one day becoming sufficiently perverse to declare that its only task is to keep itself running somehow, in order to ensure that its profiteers, teachers and administrative employees, have secure positions and solid privileges. Where one cannot expect confessions, one must rely on diagnoses. Diagnoses remould perversions into structural problems. It is obvious that the problem of today's school system is not only that it is no longer able to fulfil the state mission to breed citizens, because the definition of the goal has become too blurred among the demands of the current professional world, It is even clearer in the abandonment of its humanistic and artistic surplus in favour of devoting itself to more or less despiritised industry of pseudo-scientifically founded didactic routines. Because, in recent decades, it has no longer summoned the courage for dysfunctionality it had persistently shown since the 17th century, it changed into an empty, selfish system. It produces teachers that only remind one of teachers, school subjects that only remind one of school subjects, and pupils that only remind one of pupils. In this process, school becomes quote-unquote anti-authoritarian in an inferior fashion without formally ceasing to exercise authority. As the law of learning through imitation cannot be disabled, the school risks becoming exemplary for the next generation in its own reluctance to represent exemplarity. This means that the second and third generations will be populated almost entirely by teachers who no longer do any more than celebrate the self-referentiality of the tuition. 
the tuition taking place is self-referential because it is in the nature of the system for it to take place. The internal differentiation of the school system brings about a situation in which there is only a single main subject left in school, that of school. Accordingly, there is only one external goal to tuition, graduation with the corresponding qualification. Whoever completes a career at such a school has spent up to 13 years learning not to take the teachers as examples. Through adaptation to the system, they have learnt a form of learning that dispenses with the internalisation of the material. They have virtually irreversibly rehearsed working through it without any acquisitive practice. They have learned the habitus of a pretend learning that defensively makes various objects its own in the system imminently correct belief that the ability to adapt to the given forms of tuition is, for the time being, the aim of all pedagogy. In the light of these phenomena, radical school thinkers have called for a dissolution of the entire system. Whether, as with Ivan Illich, in the postulation of a de-schooling of society, or among current reform educators, through the suggestion of abolishing the whole established system of subjects and turning school during the formative years into an open training camp for the polyvalent intelligence of young people. Such demands are in keeping with the great shift from book culture to network culture that has taken place over the last two decades. Its practical application would lead to something resembling a reintroduction of intelligence into the wild that could be described as a controlled jungle pedagogy. In this context, there are notable findings indicating that young people who spend a great deal of time with computer games and junk communication show considerable training effects in dealing intelligently with data clutter. Stephen Johnson has summarised these developments under a title that should catch the attention of parents and systems theorists. Everything bad is good for you. It presents the thesis that almost any form of strong enculturation is better than going along with a maladaptive, selfish system that can only offer parodies of the previous education. The problem of the false teacher, which I illustrated in the philosophical context using the example of Sartre, returns to the systemic level as the problem of the false school. Malign Repetitions 3 The Self-Referential Art System of Modernity Observations of this type and this tendency are pushed yet further as soon as one turns to the art system of modernity. It is clear to anyone who examines the history of art from 1910 to the present day that the catastrophe of the visual arts took place during this time, both in the process theoretical and in the colloquial sense of the word. The three decisive generations of artists in the visual arts, from 1910 to 1945, from 1945 to 1980, and 1980 to 2015, expanded their field of their profession in a dizzyingly rapid advance towards new procedures. In the process, however, they forgot how to follow on from the highest artistic standards of the previous generation. The vast majority of them gave up the continuation of the golden chain of thematic, technical and formal limitations at the level of modernly unrestricted art experiments. 
The catastrophe of art transpires as the catastrophe of imitative behaviour and the training consciousnesses associated with it, which have spanned the previous 3,000 years of art history as a proliferation, however fragmented, of masteries and trade secrets. After a sequence of some 80 to 100 generations of imitatio-based copying processes in pre-modern art, the imitation of content and technique was almost entirely stripped of its function as a substantial cultural replicator within a mere two changes of generation. As imitation constitutes the decisive tradition-forming mechanism, however, even in a culture that disavows imitation in favour of a suggestive and dubious ideology of creativity, the imitation carried out by the moderns concerns the only aspect of art still suited to imitation, without the imitators having to notice, let alone cultivate, the tendency of the imitation themselves. This aspect consists in the fact that works of art are not only produced, but also exhibited. The shift from art as a power of production, along with the baggage of the old masters, to art as a power of exhibition, along with its freedom of effects, gives preeminence to a form of imitation that turns its back on the workshop and puts the place of presentation at the centre of events. In this way, an uncontrollably exaggerated element of selfishness enters not only the art world, but also the works themselves. From each decade to the next, one can see more clearly that they are ever less interested in their production character and ever more interested in their exhibition character. In his essay, Countdown 3, Kunstgenerationen, Heine Muhlmann uses evolution-theoretical arguments to reconstruct the freefall of the art system into a state of rigorous self-referentiality. In this X-ray image of aesthetic evolution from 1910 to the present day, it becomes clear how the systematic misjudgment of imitation and the training element leads to paradoxical imitations and perverse forms of training. Paradoxical imitations and perverse training forms are ones in which malign qualities, which one would have termed vices in earlier times, reproduce most successfully. In the imitation-blind subculture of modern visual art, on the thresholds between generations, works and artists establish themselves in which one could observe the next highest level of self-referentiality. Yet contemporary observers proved unable to conclude from this that a self-referential work is simultaneously one that denies its own existence. Rather, the consummate malignity of the modern art scene is evident precisely in the fact that even the most shrilly self-referential cynicism can be taken as proof of the transcendent nature of art. The art system has meanwhile taken over the best place in the sun of selfishness unchallenged. Although Martin Heidegger had taught that the work of art establishes a world, at the very time when art began to descend into pure self-referentiality. In reality, the work of art in the selfish system of postmodernized art has no intention of establishing a world. Rather, it presents itself as a sign that it is showing something which does not refer to any world, its own exhibited state. The work of art in the third generation of blind selfishness imitation has anything but an explicit world relation. 
what it establishes is its manifest remoteness from everything outside its own sphere. The only thing it knows about the world is that it contains people who are full of longing for experiences of meaningfulness and transcendence. It relies on the fact that many of them are prepared to gratify their yearning in the empty hermeticism of self-referential works, in the tautology of self-referential exhibitions, and in the triumphalism of self-referential museum buildings. Like all self or, like all pseudo-religions, it aims for transcendence without for a second taking its eyes off its mundane interests. When it comes to exhibiting its lack of concern for external references, the art system has even surpassed the financial one. It has already achieved what the economic system can only dream of. It has sacralized its selfishness and now displays it like a seal of election. Hence the irresistible temptation emanating from the art system for the financial system and all other domains of self-referential activity. The curators who organize self-referential exhibitions and the artists who act as self-curators and self-collectors are the only ones from whom the protagonists of speculative business can learn anything. Their lesson is this. One can never take selfishness too far, as long as the audience is prepared to react to art as if it were a manifestation of transcendence. And how else should it react in a time when any added meaning is dressed up as a religious experience? Everything suggests that the same audience will also react to extreme wealth as if it were transcendence. The future of the art system is thus easy to predict. It lies in its fusion with the system of the largest fortunes. It promises an illustrious exhibitionist future for the latter and a transition to the princely dimension for itself. Exhibitionistic it promises an illustrious exhibitionistic future for the latter and a transition to the princely dimension for itself. After the emergence of the artistic power of production in the Renaissance, which made the artist great as the master of the landscape, the portrait and the apocalypse, and after the emergence of the power of exhibition in early modernity, which began with the exhibition of a urinal and culminated in the self-exhibiting museum, we are currently experiencing the emergence of art market power, which places all the power in the hands of the collectors. The path of art follows the law of externalization, which proves the power of imitation precisely where imitation is most vehemently denied. It leads from the artists, who imitate artists, via the exhibitors, who imitate exhibitors, to the buyers, who imitate buyers. Before our eyes, the motto, l'art pour l'art, has turned into the art system for the art system. From this proposition, from this position, the art system develops into the paradigm for all successful maladaptations, indeed the source of malign copying processes of all kinds. The problem of the false school returns as a problem of seduction through the rewards provided by the art system for examples of pseudoculture. The conclusion is an obvious one. In future, there will hardly be any perversion. It does not take the current art system as an example. 
Derivative trading was long established there, before the financial world began doing the same. Like the doping-corrupted sports system, the art system is at a crossroads. Either it goes all the way on the path of corruption, through imitation of the extra-artistic effect in the world of exhibitions and collections, exposing art once and for all as the playground of the last human, or it remembers the necessity of bringing creative imitation back to the workshops and readdressing the question of how one should distinguish between what is worthy and what is unworthy of repetition 